Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 73. My guest today is Dr. Amit Dingara, professor and department head in the Department of Horticultural Sciences at Texas A&M University. His research and programming initiatives are raising the bar for the Texas wine industry. In our interview, you'll hear why horticulture is critical for our planet, how wine fits into the mix, and how an entrepreneurial approach can help Texas solve viticulture and enology problems. First, I'll share the latest Texas wine news, including reports from some of the Texas wine events that have been happening this month. Whether you're a regular listener or tuning in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. The results for Rodeo Uncorked, the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo International Wine Competition, may be out by the time you hear this podcast. 2,900 wines were entered, and a good portion of those were Texas wines. It was great to be back for my second year judging the competition, and I'll be watching the results and hoping that Texas wineries do really well. One of my favorite parts of the experience was seeing old friends, but it was also great to meet some new California winemakers who were judging for the first time and who didn't have previous experience with Texas wines. They were thrilled to be learning more about Texas wines from Blanc du Bois to Toraldigo. Speaking of wine competitions, while I was in Houston, I heard that the Fort Worth Stock Show and Rodeo is starting its own wine competition, so I'm curious to see how that one will come onto the scene. Ray Wilson's Wine for the People Wine Club members were informed recently that the Austin Tasting Room that features her Dandy and La Valentia wines will be closing because of a lease situation. But here's the exciting part of the story. Ray writes, and I quote, We are going into partnership with William Chris Vineyards. They have seen what we are building here in Austin, and they believe in it. They have taken the initiative to invest in and support our growth. There is no one else in the Texas wine scene with whom we would rather partner, end quote. Ray mentions that they've been working together for quite a while on different fronts and says that she's thrilled to announce that Wine for the People will be opening House of Dandy and La Valentia tasting room experiences at a property in the heart of Fredericksburg in January. They'll be doing pop-up events the weekend of December 8th to introduce themselves to the Hill Country community. I can't wait to see how this unfolds, and I'm especially curious to know where this property in the heart of Fredericksburg is, and if it's an existing William Chris Lost Draw property or a new place. Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and Forbes recently shared 20 of the coolest and most delicious wines for your Thanksgiving table. One of them was C.L. Buteau's 2020 Texas Tempranillo. They write, Only 250 cases exist of this unctuous and silky red wine from the Texas High Plains, so you'll do best to order this one directly from the winery. Winemaker Randy Hester's 100% Tempranillo is the full expression of what Texas fruit can do. It has elegance and finesse tempered with bold dark red fruits and nicely integrated tannins. Your guests will love this wine's complex, full-bodied deliciousness. Wine writer Kathleen Wilcox also mentioned a Texas wine in her article, The Best Unexpected Wines to Pair with Thanksgiving Dinner. Her pick is the Bending Branch Winery's Tanat Frizzante Rosé from 2022, which she calls gently effervescent with notes of strawberry, magnolia, and white peach. Dr. Bob Young from Bending Branch says the Frizzante is an excellent welcome wine that works well with Thanksgiving Day appetizers like deviled eggs and other rich appetizers. The gentle effervescence scrubs the palate between bites, making it a nice wine to carry through the meal. With fried turkey, the structure of the rosé also holds up nicely. My San Antonio website published a list on the 10 best gifts for Texans from jewelry to cookbooks. One of their suggestions is a membership to the Texas Wine Club. Hey, great idea. There are actually a number of Texas wineries that will help you with a membership or a one-time gift shipment, 
So definitely keep that in mind if you're in the market for corporate gifts or family gifts or whatever. And also don't forget that Texas Fine Wine is offering a holiday bundle with wines from their four members, Bending Branch, Pedernales, Dukeman, and Spicewood. That would also make a great gift, or maybe you just want to order it for yourself. You can order by December 7th to get it in time for Christmas. Well, Fort Worth got some Texas wine love from the Texas Hill Country wineries. They selected Cowtown's Tana Hills Tavern and Music Hall for the Fall Roadshow. 23 Texas wineries showed up to pour wine for a consumer tasting, and prior to that, a panel spoke to a smaller group of trade and media, and a trade tasting followed. The panel included Mike Baytech, co-owner and winemaker of High Meadow Winery, Patrick Connolly, the GM of Becker Vineyards, Katie Jane Seaton, one of the four owners of Farmhouse Vineyards, and Mike McHenry, owner of Wedding Oak Winery. The panelists spent about 90 minutes giving a lot of backstories about the recent harvest, the 23 growing season, and the joys and challenges of doing what they do. While I was there, I got to taste some super wines and also catch up with some old friends and meet some new podcast listeners, too. And here are a few observations from my afternoon in Fort Worth. Not only did I taste wine at the Messina Hof table, I also picked up some recipe and wine pairing cards from Messina Hof. Karen Bonarigo and Messina Hof are serious about food and wine pairings, and I have some new ideas for my holiday table. Karen also saved me by loaning me a wine key when I ended up pouring wine for Ron Yates for a bit at the consumer tasting. I spent time with two wineries that have tasting rooms in the Hill Country, but also in North Texas. Silver Dollar Winery has a location in Bedford, and Bingham Family Vineyards has a location in Grapevine and one soon to open in Roanoke. Betty Bingham spoke to the media representatives and shared news of a new label that will soon be available at HEB. Bingham has created a wine that will benefit the Blake Eddy Memorial Scholarship Fund. Blake was Cliff and Betty's 30-year-old son who died during COVID. The scholarship fund was created in 2021 with the Texas Hill Country Wineries, and it rewards ambitious and hardworking students studying in the winemaking industry. I also heard about a very special wine produced by Farmhouse Vineyards. It's called The Observer. And the grapes in the Observer were harvested on October 21st, 2017, during a total eclipse. Now Farmhouse is releasing the wine in conjunction with the annual solar eclipse that's coming to the Texas Hill Country in April of 2024. There are only 16 cases of the wine available. The etched glass bottle is cool. It's a photo that looks like a burst of light, and it was taken on Harvest Day in 2017. There's also a dry white wine called Come and See It that's also related to the eclipse. Farmhouse has a package deal going on, and you can check out their website for more details on how to enter to win their Eclipse Weekend Lodging Package in Johnson City. I was just telling somebody at the Houston Rodeo about this really clever marketing, and she said this is perhaps the most creative wine marketing approach that she's ever heard. So way to go. Katie Jane also had the funniest quote from the panel. She had some advice for everyone who says they want to plant a vineyard when they retire. She said, go ahead and convert your yard right now to tomato plants, the whole yard. And if you can keep your whole yard alive in tomato plants for three years running, then you've got a shot at a vineyard. If you still love it in three years and have bountiful tomatoes, you're a natural born viticulturalist. Go for it. John Rivenberg of Kerrville Hills Winery told me about the hill at Schreiner, which is the teaching vineyard that they've planted at Schreiner University. The building on the property is being turned into a tasting room for Kerrville Hills. Kerrville Hills has previously done pop-up tasting rooms there, and Schreiner students will now be able to learn not only about viticulture, but also about hospitality. Mike McHenry from Wedding Oak shared some reflective thoughts about the challenges of the industry, including recruiting and keeping the right people, and economic pressures, including rising costs. He said, I can't help but note today, with the passing of some of our pioneers of our industry, like Ed Aller and Gary Gilstrap and others who inspired me and were kind enough to be nice to us in the early years— these are people that were there when there were only six or eight wineries to start the Texas Hill Country wineries and everything Ed and Susan Aller contributed. And we have other people that are in that generation now that are reaching the end of their time. 
And so behind all that are the people you're seeing today that are contributing. And so that evolution, that building on the foundation of success from the past and trials and tribulations are helping us manage through these difficult periods because everybody has seen it in some form or the other. Panelists also spent time talking through harvest logistics, which sounds like a real challenge, but also about collaboration. Mike Baytek mentioned how a casual conversation with Cliff Bingham at Texas Wine Jam led to him getting a lesson on cover crops. And Katie Jane agreed and said, all farmers want other farmers to succeed anywhere, anytime. And speaking of panels, I was able to moderate a producer panel at Texas Wine Jam, which took place on November 4th and 5th in Johnson City. Texas Wine Growers and Texas Wine Lover coordinated the panel that was designed to bring about an educational angle to the festival. Texas Wine Growers is an organization made up of wineries and grape growers that commit to using only Texas grapes in their wine. Texas Wine Lover website and app was a sponsor, and they promoted the Texas Wine Lover app, which is free and helpful in planning winery visits. It's actually really cool because you can sort for wineries that are, for instance, open on Monday and allow dogs and take walk-ins. And you can also open it to figure out which winery is the closest to where you are at any given moment. And that could be handy. Anyway, panelists for this panel were John Rivenberg from Kerrville Hills, Mike Nelson of Abastris, Reagan Sivanon of Sandy Road, and Daniel Collada of Venovium. Daniel and his team did a great job planning this incredible two-day wine jam. Everyone seemed to be having a super time. And it was noted that this event was happening at the same time as the much larger Austin Food and Wine Festival, which sadly did not feature Texas wines. There have been so many Texas wine events, including dinners and pickup parties, festivals, and on and on, and it's just not possible to get to all of them. But I hope that you'll prioritize getting to some of them and buying some wine while you're there. Yes, wineries do love to see all their friends and fans at the various pouring opportunities, but remember that they're pouring so that you'll consider buying. Christmas markets and events are next on the calendar, and also don't forget about the Texas Hill Country Winery's Christmas Affair Passport Event, which is happening November 27th to December 22nd. That would make a great holiday gift, too. It's basically like a coupon book. At each winery, you get a complimentary tasting, and you can go to up to four wineries a day. There are 25 wineries participating, and they're offering some really great discounts on bottles and, of course, lots of holiday cheer. Find out more by visiting TexasHillCountryWineries.org. And finally, just in case this is your first This Is Texas Wine podcast, or maybe you haven't listened in a while, I want to tell you about a travel opportunity coming up for people who are into Texas wine. You can be really into Texas wine, like my friend Bridget, who's going on this trip, or you can be casually into it, like my friend Scott. We're going to France in April of 2024, and we'll be spending 10 days exploring southern France from Marseille up to Bordeaux. We'll visit wineries and vineyards, enjoy the foods of the region, and see some important cultural sites, too. The trip is about halfway sold out with a couple of additional people considering it who aren't entirely committed. But if that sounds like something you'd like to do, email me for more information or check out my blog post on France 2024 at thisistexaswine.com. Find the links to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. This is Texas Wine Podcast just hit a huge milestone on downloads, but what I value most is hearing from people who tell me about what they learned or what made them laugh. I'm thankful for all of my listeners, and frankly, I'm humbled that so many people in the Texas wine industry are listening in to get the latest in Texas wine news and to hear their colleagues being interviewed. And I feel proud when I hear success stories from listeners like when wineries use advice they've heard on this podcast and are successful in getting new placements at retail and on restaurant wine lists. And I love hearing from appreciative customers when they've gotten ideas about wineries to seek out and events to attend. And of course, I've heard from plenty of folks who want to connect with and possibly hire someone I've interviewed, and that's important too. I feel like a Texas wine matchmaker, 
Getting feedback, reviews, and yes, financial support also helps keep me motivated when the editing is taking forever and the technology sometimes doesn't cooperate. So thanks for all the listens and the support. Find out more about how to support the pod. Go to thisistexaswine.com. And now it's time for our interview. My guest today is Dr. Amit Dingara, and the conversation you're about to hear almost convinced me to go back to school to study horticulture. Dr. Dingra is department head and professor in the Department of Horticultural Sciences at Texas A&M University. He's been in Texas for a couple of years and has already made an impact in the enthusiastic way he's approached his work in the viticulture space. In this interview, you'll learn more about why horticulture matters, how sustainability is key, and how Texas A&M hopes to create an environment of innovation. He's taking Texas wine around the world and also to the constituents right there on campus and in Bryan College Station. Let's hear from Dr. Dingra now. I appreciate you taking a minute to talk about Texas wine with me. Absolutely, and thank you very much for inviting me to do this. Justin speaks very highly of your program and what you do for the wine industry, and I'm honored that you asked me to be on your podcast. Well, the first time I met you was at the Texas Hill Country Winery Symposium in 2022, and you were new to Texas. So tell me a little bit about your background before you arrived in Texas. So I uh, moved from uh, Washington State University, where I'd gone through the process of, uh, you know, tenure, uh, became a full professor in 2018 there. And I was the interim chair for about 13 months. While I was doing this, I got approached by Texas A&M Department of Horticultural Sciences to apply for the department head position. And it was exciting. You know, I had one of my colleagues over there whose uh, research I had read during my PhD work. So when, when she came calling and said, hey, you need to, you need to apply for this. We've been seeing what you're doing at, at WSU, both research-wise, but also in terms of leadership. I had also turned one of my technologies into a spin-out, which had grown quite a bit. So that was, that was kind of an interesting turning point for me. And my research over at Washington State was working with horticultural crops, mapping the genomes of some of the important crops. Our lab was the U.S. lead on sequencing the apple genome in collaboration with the leadership from Italian groups and other European groups as well. So, you know, it's just fostering collaboration. And I was in a state which was number one on growing apples, pears, cherries. I've worked a lot with pears. I'm passionate about pears. And yeah, so a lot of that work kind of led to also working a lot with my immediate industry that works in these areas, the growers, the producers who've become family now over the last 15 years. And, you know, after I moved to Texas, of course, I still maintain that. But that that was kind of the origin where I came from. And I've been in this position. I really feel very fortunate to represent a very diverse and large department. There are about 22 departments of horticulture in the country now. And Texas A&M is one of the larger ones. And it's my good fortune that I get to represent my colleagues now. That's great. I was taking a look at your website. You have undergraduate programs, graduate programs, certificate programs, and then extension specialists. So I do imagine that it's a large collaborative effort and you guys have a lot going on. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. When you first talked to the Hill Country Winery Symposium, you mentioned that you were excited to learn more about Texas wine and that you were going to attempt to visit a lot of Texas wineries. You may have even said all of the Texas wineries, which is a a large (laughs) undertaking. Um, what has been fun for you to learn about Texas wine and what have you been excited to try to contribute early? I know you've only been there two years or so. Yeah, so I'll, I'll speak on the uh, administrative piece or the, 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 you know, department head position piece, but also I want to talk about the research part. So let me start with research and that will segue into the other aspect. So while I was at Washington State University, I have been working with grapes you know, different aspects of grapes for a pretty long time, almost last 15, 16 years. And and in particular, I have active collaborations with a couple of my colleagues. On one side, we are understanding the effect of heat and drought on grape production. That was with Professor Marcus Keller. He's a very well-renowned physiologist. And the other one is looking at the smoke exposure 
the smoke damage that happens to uh, grape berries and that really creates uh, off flavors in wine. So we've been looking at these, uh, these projects for a long time. So as I have started my program at Texas A&M, uh, my focus will remain with this climate-related issues, which is heat and drought are plenty in Texas. Yes. And so we have no dearth of that. So I think there is some relevance to that directly. Now, coming into Texas industry, as I've learned about it, what has really astonished me is the diversity of varietals that we can grow in Texas. You know, Texas is, of course, as large as France or larger. And currently, I think there are about 80 different varietals that can be grown. So it's a very different paradigm from the West Coast states where the aspiration is, let's make one grape as our flagship varietal. With Texas having 11 different growing regions, 1,300 different soil types, this is what I've learned, right? So if we have all these aspects, it's kind of interesting what can we grow there. And also it creates opportunities for now developing varietals for production in in Texas as well. So it gives us an advantage as an industry to really differentiate and distinguish ourselves on the world's global stage as well. So the point I made that I want to visit all wineries, I mean, that's, that's going to be like Alice in Wonderland because, <laughs> right. because the number is growing. I mean, we are already, in terms of bonded, a number of wineries, Texas is already number three behind California and Washington. So it's growing rapidly and with so many people moving into Texas and everybody enjoying wine and learning about wine, I think this is going to keep growing. It's, it's a big sector. As you know, that just a few years ago, it was it was contributing about thirteen to fifteen billion dollars to the economy. But as of this year, it's already jumped to twenty point three five billion. So my quest to reach out to each winery has kind of morphed into reach out to each region mm-hmm. and also slowly but surely keep meeting folks at uh, any of the events that we have, any conferences we have. But the other part I'm doing is hosting this program we created. Spirited learning, which I'll speak about later. It's expanding in its scope now. It's it's really bringing some of the wineries, all sizes of wineries. We had Becker Vineyards in September, one of the largest and the oldest wineries. And then we also had some up-and-coming winery, which have just one product so far. Hmm. That was uh, in May that we, we brought in three small wineries. So we're trying to represent everybody and bring them on campus and putting them face-to-face with the next generation of consumers, if you will, are just creating awareness about the Texas horticulture and viticulture and wine industry. I think Paul Bonarigo was bragging about your spirited learning program when I had him on the podcast. Tell me what is the format of that and who is the audience? The spirited learning is a collaborative program where we are trying to celebrate Texas horticulture. And, you know, viticulture is part of horticulture. So the idea started off with couple of things, a couple of observations that led me to this. So while I was at Washington State, I was in the Department of Horticulture. I was not aware of how horticulture as a discipline, as a name, has seemed to like disappear in the background. But as I took on the helm at A&M, of course, I have to be the loudest cheerleader of horticulture and all the disciplines underneath it. Started finding out that our industries, not just the wine industry, but so we have five major areas, sectors in horticulture. This is important because spiritual learning kind of caters to everything. So that's why I bring it up. And wine is the thing that brings everybody together. So the number one industry that is valued at $38 billion is the green industry, the ornamental landscape industry. And then this is all annual impact on the state economy. Then we've got the pecan industry, which is valued at about $500 million. The fruit and vegetable industry valued at about $12 billion to the economy. And of course, the wine industry, that's now valued at about $20.35 billion. And then we have an up-and-coming industry, the controlled environment horticulture industry, which some people call vertical farming or CEA. But I call it controlled environment horticulture because we are growing greens and you know, berries and other things in there. When we start growing corn and wheat in there, we can call it controlled environment agriculture. So I just want to make sure we keep promoting the term horticulture so that the general public realizes how important it is for them. 
uh, this discipline. So mm-hmm. when I heard that all of our industries are facing a challenge, they're not getting enough young people getting trained in the skills, disciplinary skills that relate to all these, you know, horticultural practices, because that kind of translates. So if somebody gets trained in viticulture, they can definitely transition easily to growing fruits, for example, other kind of fruits. So it's a transferable skill set, knowledge set, but it's working with these horticultural crops is the important part. The other part is that slowly but surely across the country, the departments of horticulture have gotten merged into like generic plant science departments. And when that starts happening, I think the university's mission to serve its immediate industries is kind of lost somewhere because the industry is still called horticulture industry, and yet we don't have programs to support that directly. It's like, for example, there will be no animal science program while there is a massive cattle industry in the country. That kind of analogy kind of sums it up. So we had two challenges, shared challenge. Our industry is not getting young people. We are not getting young people walking into our doors. So the idea was, how do we create awareness about horticulture overall? And then my colleague, Andrea Bordesar, she's the associate professor and extension enologist at Texas A&M. She had done a survey that 60% of Texans were unaware that they, we have a wine industry in the state. That's hard so to believe. All, yeah. And people who live like close to Fredericksburg and Austin area are unaware of that. So that was kind of an interesting if you can see these missing dots, I said, what can we really do to bring people together and create awareness about the wine industry, about Texas horticulture, you know, tell them that we are native place of growing pecans for thousands of years and pecans are amazing health-wise, or we have this massive ornamental industry. It doesn't come from somewhere else. We grow it all here. So these are some ideas that kind of precipitated just before the holidays in December of 2021. I remember I was sitting with folks from the department, some faculty and staff, and Justin Shiner was there too. He said, oh, you know, I do this wine tasting in my classroom. I'm trying to educate students. And I thought, well, before we go and inform the rest of the world about Texas wine industry or Texas horticulture, let's educate our own community. Let's create a program called Spirited Learning, where we will start featuring a winery And through that, we will start bringing people together, which will be students, administrators, community members, leaders to come together and just learn and just enjoy. And that gives, you know, that's kind of a land grant mission to support our stakeholders or our growers and our industries. So that's where the idea started. And I want to give credit. I was talking about this with the uh, owner of Carwell Hills Winery, John Rivenberg. Yes. And that was somewhere in January. And he basically said, oh, it. I like the idea. Let's do it. Worst come to worst, we'll fail. Let's do it. So he became the first featured winery in in that spring of 2022. And we had about 120 people at the time. Today, we are getting more than 550 RSVPs. And we've partnered with, for example, Texas Pecan Growers Association. So Texas Grape Growers came, uh, Texas Pecan Growers came together. All their board members were on town. So we partnered with them. We recently partnered with College of Agriculture Developmental Council. These are former students who are really advocating for the college. We partnered with them in the most recent event where we featured William Chris Vineyards. Chris Brundret is one of our former students who graduated in 2006. Yeah, that place probably had more than 500 people all at the same time. It was just amazing to see. So your question, who attends? We've started collecting demographic information, more than 70%, 75%. We have students from all disciplines, undergraduate, graduate students, scientists from all disciplines across the campus. It's spreading word of mouth right now. Then we have faculty, department heads. uh, We have college leadership. We've actually been very fortunate when Messina Hoff was featured in spring of 2022, our chancellor joined us. He graced the occasion by his presence. So it's it's been really great to bring the community together. And now we're working with the city of uh, College Station to come in. So this is where Spirit Learning stands today. We are exposing our Texas horticulture industry, including the featured wineries, to these group of people who would never come together on their own. So the scope of Spirit Learning is expanding as we are moving forward. We are actually going to start co-featuring a winery as well as other horticultural industry. For example, we're going to bring a pecan uh, producer and processor along with the wine industry. So 
that way we can really bring the, you know, together, raise the tide and, and, and bring people together around horticulture because both health and community building go hand in hand. And, you know, I have to give credit to, to, you know, Justin's class as well as to Charlie Hall's class. He's a professor, teaches social horticulture. They teach large service courses, 300 to 400 students who come from all over the campus. So they're getting exposed to what is Texas horticulture? What is its value? What is our legacy in, in, in this space? You know, I, I do want to speak about Mr. TV Munson's legacy, which is kind of a lot of Texans don't know about uh-huh. how he saved, saved the world's wine industry. And he was a horticulturist who saved the wine industry, by the way. So. Yes. Tell me, tell me about TV Munson. We've touched on uh, who he is. But I, I think we could never say it too often because it's such an important part of uh, Texas wine history, even though he wasn't a native Texan, but we still like to claim him. Well, yeah, but he lived in Denison. He was not native from here, but he lived in Denison, Texas at the time. He had collected these wild species of grapes from the hill country. And at the time, phylloxera was devastating and insect was devastating the wine industries in France and he, he was approached by the French government and he sent some material in the 1870s, and that's what really saved the industry. So he was a teetotaler. He was breeding grapes for making good wine, but also for table grapes, and he developed a lot of fruit cultivars, ornamentals. So he was a prolific plant breeder who was, you know, I just imagine the times in 1860s, 70s, just riding a horse around Texas, collecting these wild species. Must be a gift to gentlemen. And he, he created these plant material, which really kind of became the foundation of the rootstocks that are currently used as well. So his contribution or Texas contribution, if you will, through him are really sort of, sort of a great legacy to always recall. And I, I find myself in a very fortunate position that I get to interact with the TV Munson family now, the fifth generation. They're just amazing people. And, and it, it's, it's a great shared Texan legacy we should all be aware of. And even today, so many vineyards across the world have rootstock with Texas origins, right? Absolutely. That's why we have a saying, there's some Texas in every wine of the world. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. One other question about, about research. You hear so much about these new varieties that are coming into play, and a lot of them stem from Andy Walker's lab at UC Davis. Yeah. Yeah. Is creating new varieties like like they've done out at Davis something that Texas A&M might do in the future? Absolutely. We are actually in the process of hiring a plant breeder who would do that because what Andy, of course, I know Andy pretty well. Andy created things for, you know, Californian climates. We are testing them here as well. But as I was saying earlier, we have such unique environments and we have a unique opportunity to really create varietals to support our growers directly for what we produce here. So bringing new grapes is, you know, not new. It's been happening for quite some time in table grapes, as you know. That's why you have those bubblegum flavored or cotton candy. Cotton candy flavored grapes and everything. So why not wine grapes as well? As the younger generation is coming into its own, they are really, you know, the new new generation of twenties and thirties, they're they're looking into varietals. They're looking into blends. And I think the market will continue to evolve. Actually, in 2008, when I was at WSU, we were trying to work with a unique cultivar of grape called Pixie Grape and wanted to really understand about that. Uh, I had been asked, are we going to keep drinking Merlots and Cabs? I said, no, that's going to change with time. And at the time, I did not know that there's a whole world of varietals that remain unexplored. Even today, for example, in Texas, there's a grape that I think only Messinahoff and Kerbal Hills make wine of, Sagrantino. It's an Italian grape from a very small region in Italy. Paul Bonarigo introduced me to that grape. I mean, creating our own varietals is one thing, but there are also other varietals from other parts of the world that we can bring in and try it out in our state to really create a diversity and, and be known as a state. We can have our own grape or or be a place which really innovates and creates very unique blends and very unique wines from these cultivars that we develop ourselves. So yeah, we we do plan to move into that direction within the next year or so. Actually, I've been already doing some uh, grape improvement, crop improvement in my program, which of course will also contribute to those efforts. 
And I think the Walker varieties are supposed to be um, Pierce's disease resistant. So if you were to create something new, would it be around drought resistance? Well, we'll have to combine these traits, right? Pierce disease is the big problem everywhere. So definitely that is one part, but then powdery mildew, downy mildew, those are the biotic or the pathogen-based things. But then, of course, we've got the heat and drought. It's not heat or drought. We have to now create what we call as climate resilience. Because as you've seen recently, it's not too hot or too cold or too dry. It's all of the above and it's all unpredictable. So how do we create some plasticity or resilience, flexibility in a plant to adjust to extreme conditions? That's where we really want to start going. And there is research emerging from other plant species right now where um, you can you can bring in elements to breeding or genome editing to really create that resilience in plants. So we are starting to understand, and that will translate into future varietals, of course. Very exciting. I want to change direction just a little yeah. bit. I know that fairly recently, the Texas Department of Agriculture named you to lead the scientific delegation to the OIV. Can you tell us what the OIV is and why it's important that Texas participate? Yes. So the OIV is the International Organization of Vine and Wine, and it is uh, it has 50 countries as voting members. It's an intergovernmental organization. So all the state governments or, or country governments are involved in this process. They create policies to follow in winemaking, wine marketing, wine labeling, protecting different regions of production. So they are kind of this self-assembled group uh, of folks of course, appointed by the governments now to take care. And, and interestingly, this was founded about 100 years ago in 1924 in Dijon, uh, France. And they all came together because of our old friend, actually old foe, the Loxera. And in fact, they're celebrating 100 years of their formation next year in France. And, you know, the Loxera is the one that T.B. Munson kind of created those genetics against. So just just showing that there is a historical connection Texas in particular has with OIV, with the OIV. So last year, we found out that Texas Department of Ag had taken the leadership in applying to become a member or worked with OIV to become a member state. So it's not a voting uh, position. You have to be a whole country to become a member, voting member, but as a state or different business organizations, you can become observers. So Texas became an observer and last year, spring of last year, and I was I feel very fortunate and extremely honored to represent Texas to this uh, organization because that has suddenly brought visibility. By the way, we are a whole delegation, so I lead the scientific delegation, but of course, Texas Department of Agriculture is the uh, official uh, representative, which represents Texas, state mm-hmm. of Texas. And uh, we have a delegation. They're our own group. So Justin Shiner, he represents viticulture. And Andrea Bodizar represents enology. Then we also have my colleague from University of Texas, Eric Anslin. He's done some work on sensing tannins. So he's on the chemistry side. Then we also have representation from Texas Tech on that. So... And, and there are industry members as part of this as well. So it has really catapulted or created global visibility to Texas industry uh, in the eyes of the world, the wine industry. I didn't and, notice any other states. I think Texas may be the only state that is an observer. I didn't see any others. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are the only state out of the United States, yes. So what that has done, Shelley, is that it's really put us on a platform. And I've been very fortunate to represent the science piece. And I, of course, work in the area of viticulture and sustainability. So I represent that. I've been part of those delegations. I've interacted with colleagues from all over the world. I have had a chance to represent us last year. And we were in Ensenada, Mexico. This year, we were in Jerez, Spain, to talk about what we're doing. But something spectacular happened in Jerez, in Spain, this year. William Chris Vineyards presented their wines for wine tasting because in that meeting, different regions of the world were doing wine tastings. And, you know, they had 30 to 40 people who would show up or could sign up. That was our tops. But when William Chris Vineyards started showing their own wines and, and wanted to just showcase Texas wines in general, 
We had standing room only in that space. We had to bring chairs and people were so eager to hear what's happening in Texas. I was standing in the back of the room, just overlooking where Chris was presenting far up front. I felt like I was witnessing a historical moment where the Texas wines were being recognized for their high quality, you know, by all these global experts who are interested in business, like, oh, this is a great place. So I find myself in a very fortunate situation, timely situation to be here and being represented. It's such a big honor. So OIV has opened us to the whole world. And I think this will really further catapult the growth of the industry recognition of the wonderful work everybody's been putting in over the years, last 40, 50 years of effort of developing the wine industry. It will put us in a world stage for agritourism. It is already doing that. As you know, Texas is being visited by so many folks from around the world. And wine industry is going to bring people together. I love that. And I love that you mentioned that people were excited about the wine quality because I think sometimes people are just intrigued by Texas because of its reputation. Yeah. But if the wine quality doesn't doesn't match, then we're not going to stay on that world stage for long. Yeah, but you know, our the wines from our wineries over here in Texas are like winning gold medals around the world in different competitions. So we are, I mean, I, Texas wine industry, I, I shouldn't say has arrived. They, they've arrived a long time ago. I think it's just overcoming that reputation because for so long, California and Washington, well, same thing happened with Washington too, and California was the only player in town, the only game in town. So I think it just takes time, but I think Texas is coming on its own. And yeah, each of these wines have won. And now, you know, when it's unfair to say that a Cab Sauv or, a, you know, let's say any variety, yeah, let's say Cab Sauv grown in California is going to be the same as grown in Texas. Texas has got its own terroir and its own growing conditions, its own environmental conditions, it's going to produce its own kind of cap. So it's standing its own, own merit. And it's really exciting people around the world. I agree. Well, in preparing for our chat today, I found a video of you doing a talk for TEDx, Washington State. Yeah. And you were talking about the future of this planet and how fruit and fruit tree farmers could possibly help solve some of the important problems in the world. I also yes. know that you have an, an entrepreneurship interest and have a lot of you know business dealings, things that have spun out of your labs. And you close with this comment, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. A yeah. quote by Alan Kay. Now yeah. that you've seen the Texas wine industry, what has your entrepreneurship wheels turning? What are you seeing as areas of opportunity for entrepreneurs to come into the state, not just to start wineries, but what other things are, are to be done? Well, I think I've arrived in the, the most entrepreneurial state in the country. Isn't <laughs> <Probably>. that correct? <laughs> I imagine so. Yeah. That's why I feel like at home sometimes, like, yep, that's where I was meant to be. I want to say something about that, and I just want to raise a flag for horticulture in general. Fruit crops are far more sustainable. So I grew up in times in India in the 70s, 80s, food was limited. The world was trying to grow enough calories. Subsistence was the mission at the time. And then, of course, Dr. Norman Borlaug, who was a professor at Texas A&M as well, and has a Borlaug, Borlaug Institute, a Nobel Prize winner, really, he's credited with having saved a billion lives, and including mine, because I grew up in India in those times, actually eating the uh, products of his research, the wheat that he had generated. So research can sometimes have far-reaching effects. We don't realize what it does, but his research in partnership with Indian scientists kind of saved Indian Pakistani scientists, really saved that part of the world in producing. And of course, in Mexico as well, because he actually developed all these uh, wheat varieties in Mexico, first of all. So where I was going was that the, the emphasis was subsistence. But as time goes by, we have realized that it's not just subsistence. We need to have nutrition. And when I say nutrition, there are two parts to that. One is, of course, your physical nutrition. The other part is mental nutrition, health, overall, wellness. So that's why our mission at our department right now is sustainability, wellness, and food security. And and I think with food security, I mean to add that horticulture crops have both calories and nutrition. And that's where 
the future of horticulture is. And when we come to grapes, you know, table grapes, raisin, of course, very healthy. They've been part of different cultures because wine grape production or grape production goes thousands of years back. And wine brings people together. Wine brings, builds communities. It, it helps break barriers to, and it's not the alcohol part. It's the social aspect of that. And that's another very important piece horticulture does. Of course, wine is an extension of that, but working with plants also does that. It, it brings people together. I mean, today's generation, eight out of 10 people are uh, thought to be suffering from some level of anxiety, especially the younger generation. So we need to provide this, this safe place for them, for them to come together and build, be a part of a community. So in terms of entrepreneurship, I think in terms of wine industry in particular, if I drill it down, I, I went to the forest, I'll come back to the trees. <laughs> the biggest piece is that the area is rife for innovation in terms of all aspects of it. My entrepreneurial things, working with people, is just like, let's solve simple problems. Can our growers get high-quality planting material? You know, create standards, develop better yeast systems, which can help in customized fermentations. I mean, we haven't really innovated on those things, but if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be in Texas because the spirit of Texas is really innovating without fearing tradition while we are seeped in tradition at the same time. It's, it's, a, it's a great sort of a social ecosystem that I see where while we are rooted in our traditions, we are also leading the future. And the biggest part for all of me, having accumulated all those experiences, is that all my colleagues in the department, our extended colleagues, we are all working towards that similar goal to support our industry's growth. And that will only happen through innovation. I don't have specific answers. We should invent this or that. Because that really comes from what do our, what do our industries need? So I have actually created a undergraduate entrepreneurship program where we are bringing in some select students, self-selected group of students who are working on industry specific challenges. So entrepreneurship is not a destination, right? It's kind of a way of doing things. And that's where my wheels are turning. How do we invent the future every day? I think we work on in our classrooms. We work on problems that uh, learn about the, the basics of knowledge, but at the same time, in this entrepreneurship program, we are trying to understand what are our industry's specific needs? What do they need today? Or what, can, what will they need in the future? So we are focusing on their present and future needs, predictive needs, and developing things around that. And I'm engaging. There's a group of about 12 undergraduates who've come together in this program. We meet on Fridays from 5.30 to 6.30. It's a commitment to show off for that for sure. <laughs> but they do. But they do. I have a couple of my colleagues who are part of this as well. A couple of postdocs, graduate students who come together. We are just meeting on our own. I get pizza, of course, but that's not the drawing part, you know. Couldn't hurt. But you can kind of, we're trying to create a culture where this becomes the norm. And that's how I think we can invent is create an ecosystem, a culture, a tradition where it becomes part of the fabric. I had done a professional sabbatical, professional leave in 2018, 2019. I had the for good fortune of visiting about seven institutions to just understand what their ecosystems are, uh, entrepreneurship or innovation ecosystems are. What I found very fascinating was, you know, most places students are worried about their grades. But I talked to a few students. I visited Stanford for a week, met for some students. They're not worried about grades. They've already done that part. They're thinking about how do we solve problems? How do we change? What's the next big thing we can do? I think if we inculcate that culture along with solid foundation in education, we, we can continue to, you know, I don't have to invent the future. I think it's the next generation that has to do it. And I think we're just trying to train them to think like that so that they can be ready for any challenges that, that come in the future. And hopefully they'll find enough opportunities in Texas to stay engaged in horticultural industries here in Texas. Absolutely. And I think that's why the network, the, the partnerships, the collaboration, and you might recall I said earlier at Washington State, my grower groups became, have, have become my friends and family. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happened in the last two years. One of the biggest highlights for me is I've, I've, I've been welcomed in homes and I've stayed with my, my friends who've become my friends and family. And uh, we've, we've celebrated July 4th together. We prayed together. We, you know, barbecued together. I want to tip a hat to Mr. Neil Newsom. He gifted me my first Texas cowboy hat. 
Nice. And also to my uh, my pecan grower buddy Shannon and Sh- uh, Shelby Ivy, they took me to get my first custom made boots. So I'm I'm getting slowly but surely, uh, you know, getting into the Texan colors. I love it. One idea that I want to ask about in terms of entrepreneurship, I've heard it mentioned before. I don't remember if it was recorded on this podcast or if it was just somebody mentioning to me in passing that Texas growers get all of their plant material from nurseries in California and that maybe yeah. maybe sometimes the the actual product isn't up to the standards of what a California grower might get. I don't know if that's because of distance that it has to travel or what, but is there an opportunity for a nursery to be in Texas to provide Texas growers with plant material? Absolutely. I think that's that's one area of innovation. In fact, you know, you heard my entrepreneurship. It was in this space supporting the apple, pear, grape, and hops and cherry industry in, in Washington. So, yeah, I mean, that is a need worldwide of high quality plant material because that, if you think about a business thing, the only unit in your orchard vineyard is the one that produces the product, right? Mm-hmm. If that is of not good quality, that's your biggest weak weak point then. So we basically utilize all our genomics and biotechnology research to really produce a platform to provide clean, true-type, virus and disease-free plant material in Washington, that's already continuing. So absolutely, that was a need here. That's the need in Texas as well. So yes, the, a Texas-based nursery is definitely going to be the the the, uh, the immediate need so that we can really fuel the growth of the industry. And as we have to do new trials, so it might be a nursery with a different twist who is not just focused on business, but also looking at the R&D part of, hey, I have these hundred different varietals from different places. Who wants to try it? So it's, it's going to be a different type of partnership, mm-hmm. different Makes model. Sense. That's what I see. Yeah. When you came here from Washington, one of the articles that was written about your arrival mentioned the close relationships that you had forged. And you've spoken to that with pear producers and other agricultural stakeholders in the state. I was encouraged to know that there was a collaborative effort between Texas A&M, Texas Tech, and the University of Texas to try to get some research funded. But I understand that a bill of um, allowing funding for that type of project did not pass the legislature. Can you give me a little more information about that? Yeah, I think that was an industry-driven effort to bring us all together into this, you know, Texas Wine Grape Growers sort of organization. They wanted to really bring all the universities because they they see, the industry sees the need that research has to fuel. And, I, and you know, Chris Brundrett and I work together quite well or, or very closely. He's a good friend. In fact, we joke that we are twin uh, brothers from different mothers kind of thing. <laughs> you can cut that if you like. If it's not <laughs> no, I like that. <laughs> but, you know, Chris always says that the future growth of our industry will depend on high quality science coming from all universities working together. So, all credit to the industry for bringing us together. And, you know, when, when I was asked, hey, would you be willing to work with Texas Tech and UT? And I was like, industry people had asked me that question. And I said, well, as long as it serves your needs, there is, we are here. We are, our mission is land grant mission. We are here to serve your needs, whatever it takes. So that they really put together a document in um, UT. Well, they put the document and you know, our universities didn't really contribute to the document preparation, but yeah, we were we were brought together under that umbrella, and the 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 industry led that whole process, and somehow it kind of fell through the cracks somewhere, I guess, in the process. I don't know all the details, frankly, Shelley, but I know those are intricate processes that go on during the legislative session. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do know that there was support from all sides. Maybe it didn't make the priority list because, of course, there are always competing priorities, but I, I'm not I'm not very well educated about the whole process, what happened, but it just didn't make through. But the the outcome, the good outcome is we as universities stand united to support the industry and in there are various facets or needs of research. And again, as I told you earlier with OIV, we are all members as well. So it has at least set set a platform for us to go forward. And now we have this the industry has this model it has created, which it can then pursue further through other avenues as well. Good. Well, that's that's reassuring. 
Yeah. Well, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you feel like is important for people to understand about what you're doing at Texas A&M? Yes. I just want to speak briefly about sustainability because everybody talks about that. I want to explain what that is. The biggest part for us is whatever research knowledge we generate, it is targeted at the ensuring the economic viability of an industry, both in the short, medium and long term, because some of the research may not bear fruit, sorry for the pun, mm-hmm. uh, right away, right away. But, you know, I have colleagues who are doing need driven research, which might sound like I don't understand why you're doing that. Well, the reason is it's kind of helps us prepare for the unpredictable future. Uh, but then there are colleagues who are working right side by farmers and, you know, how to set up a vineyard. I mean, that is immediately helping them. So. There's a whole spectrum of support coming in. The next biggest piece and the key piece for sustainability is to sustain the future of our industries. So one thing I wanted to spread out is any young people wanting to know what possibilities exist in horticulture as a profession, or there are there's a multitude of professions that one can go through after getting in horticulture. Uh, I'm I'm working very hard on that messaging, and that is what is the key part that will sustain the growth of our industries and keep them economically and globally competitive. So that is the major part of sustainability that I talk about. And then finally, of course, we are bringing science to bear and practices to make sure our environment, our soils are healthy. So that's the sort of the sum total of sustainability piece. I would like to really spread out. And if there are, if your listeners or if folks uh, are interested in, the, if their kids want to come and learn about horticulture, please pass on my information. We we have an open door policy. We welcome people to come and learn about the various possibilities and opportunities because we will always need to eat. And if we eat well, we need to depend on horticultural crops. And, you know, people forget how close we are to horticulture so if you walk into uh, HEB because we are Texans so HEB is our brand right of course, yeah. if you walk if you walk into HEB if, uh, from the non pharmacy side you look on the right the produce aisle everything is horticulture right there you look to the left the flowers that's horticulture everything is horticulture we just have forgotten that name and in fact one of my colleagues uh, recently said oh HEB horticulture edible beautiful Nice. <laughs> so I think the beauty, the aesthetic part also comes from, you know, when we process our horticultural products like tea, coffee, wine, of course. So I think that's, that's the messaging I just wanted to share that I'm excited to be representing one of the diverse and one of the largest departments, diverse disciplinary uh, in the disciplines. We, we are probably one of the only departments uh, also offers a Bachelor of Arts degree in horticulture focusing on floral design. But yeah, of course, that's sort of science and horticulture. So it's it's an amazing department, and I'm just very fortunate and feel blessed to be at the helm with all my colleagues. Well, I'm so glad that you're doing the job you're doing. I just hear wonderful things about all the different programs and different people that work in your department. I think that it's really important that you mention the sustainability element too. And I was just listening to a podcast about how how dangerous it could be if the continuing trends are for all of our food production to be outsourced to other countries and kind of the risk that that puts our country in. That was the food security part. If we forget how to grow food, that is the biggest challenge we face. And that's why it's very important that people who are interested in technology, for example, also learn horticulture because there are so many applications of big data, big technologies. That's where we're going to do the innovation. And now you know why I started that entrepreneurship program as well, because we really want to bring knowledge from various other disciplines to bear into uh, our students' education. Wonderful. Well, I hope that you recruit a lot of the the brightest folks from around the country or the world to come study in your department, because I think this is important. And I'm glad that you're turning people into Texas wine fanatics while they're on <laughs> campus. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Shelley. you. Thank you, Dr. Dingra. Listeners, if you're interested in more from Texas A&M Horticultural Sciences Department, be sure to check out episode 40 from March of last year, featuring Dr. Justin Shiner, who's an associate professor and extension viticulture specialist. You heard Dr. Dingra referred to him in this podcast. It's another good one.
No demerits and gold stars this time. If you have ideas for who should receive a gold star for doing something great in Texas wine or a demerit for something that isn't as spectacular, send them my way. So that's it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with an interview with Grayson Davies, winemaker at RK Winery in St. Joe, which is in far north Texas. Until then, you can get in touch, send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes. Email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. If you've been enjoying this podcast for a while, please consider supporting it by donating virtual Texas wine. That's how you can help defray my podcast expenses like travel and podcast hosting services. Visit thisistexaswine.com. And finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Check out txwinelover.com and download the app to help you plan your next Texas winery trip. Thanks for listening. Cheers, y'all.